Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 91. Derek Kidner says helpfully here, This is a psalm for danger, for times of exposure and encirclement, or of challenging the power of evil, closed quote. After Psalm 23, Psalm 91 might be the most beloved of all the psalms. The protections that it promises are so precious that the chief difficulty we have with the psalm is knowing how literally and how immediately we may lay claim to that which is being offered here. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Structurally, the psalm is reasonably straightforward. In the first two verses, the psalmist speaks of his own faith. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Then in verses 3 to 13, the psalmist turns to the listener and applies the truths he has just confessed to us. The you in verse 3 is singular, and it is throughout this middle section. The psalmist is saying, if you believe what I believe, if you are taking refuge in God as I have done, then you will experience these protections as well. Then in the final section of the psalm, in verses 14 to 16, the psalmist prophetically presents us with the pledge of Almighty God. The I in those verses is God. God promises to deliver. God promises to be present. God promises to honor all those who take refuge in him. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. The psalmist here uses four distinct metaphors to refer to God. He describes God as a shelter, a shadow, a refuge, and a fortress. Now, we haven't spoken yet about the authorship of Psalm 91, and that is partly because no author is mentioned. But it does come right after Psalm 90, which is ascribed to Moses. And it uses a lot of the same language and terminology. And therefore, many scholars have assumed that this psalm was written by Moses. And that argument seems fairly compelling to me, particularly after having just recently worked my way through the book of Exodus for the End of the Word podcast. Moses, more than anyone in the Old Testament, knew what it was to dwell in the shelter and shadow of the Almighty. The tabernacle tent was a shelter and a shadow. Do you remember the four layers of curtain and covering that were hung over the outer frame of the tabernacle? In the episode for Exodus chapter 26, I described these various coverings and said, the net result of this multi-layer covering is that the inside of the tent would have been very dark, very quiet, and noticeably cooler than the outside world, close quote. And that's where Moses spent a great deal of his time while Israel was wandering in the desert. And one cannot help but wonder whether or not Moses wrote this psalm while communing with the Lord inside that shelter. Moses went into that dark place where it was noticeably cooler and quieter than the outside world. And in that place, he knew the Lord. 
He encountered the power and the majesty of Yahweh, and he knew that as long as God's people were in right relationship with this God, they would be fine. What harm could befall them? What dangers could penetrate this shield? The Lord is my refuge and my fortress. Thanks be to God. The psalmist also uses four different names for God in these opening two verses. He refers to him as the Most High, the Almighty, the Lord, Yahweh, and Elohim, or simply God. And I think the point for us is probably this. The better you know God, the more likely it is that you will trust him in troubled times. In the next section, the psalmist spells out for us some of the implications and applications of the truths he has just confessed himself. We jump back into the text at verse 3. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. W.S. Plumer says here, By the snare of the fowler we may understand any mischief plotted by Satan or his servants. Closed quote. People who are in right relationship with God need fear no plot or scheme of the devil. And neither ought they to panic at the approach of plague or pestilence. I love how the old King James Version translates verse 3. It says, Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. That's a good word, isn't it? Noisome. Along with the very real health and medical dangers that a pandemic represents, it also tends to upend the peace and prosperity of people. Whole cities, countries, and continents can be thrown into a tizzy, not just by the reality, but by the potentiality. Fear can often spread even faster than the virus itself. And that, too, is covered under the blanket of these promised protections. If you are trusting in God, then you need not be overwhelmed by fear. We don't need to fear the devil, and we don't need to fear plague, pestilence, and pandemic. If we are in God through faith in Jesus Christ, then what can these things do to us? The Apostle Paul asks that very question in Romans 8. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, close quote. If you are inside the fortress of God's love, brother, sister, then you are safe. We jump back into the text at verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. I love what Matthew Henry says here. He says, God is willing to guard his people, as the hen is to guard the chickens, and as able as a man of war 
in armor, closed quote. That is a marvelous mixing of metaphors. If God were only like the mother chicken, then I would be nervous, to be perfectly honest with you. A mother chicken may want to protect her chicks, but as everyone who has ever eaten a chicken nugget knows, she's not always able to do so. But if a mother chicken were also like a man of war in armor, then we'd probably all have to adopt a plant-based diet. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Yahweh is the best of all protectors. He has the concern of the mother chicken and the strength of the man of war. Thanks be to God. We jump back into the text at verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Again, I can't read this without thinking of the Exodus. Moses knew what it was to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb and to be kept safe from the pestilence that stalks in darkness. It did not touch him, nor did it touch anyone in his house. He saw it, but he did not fear it. And the same can be true for you, believer. For anyone who takes shelter under the blood of the Lamb, Matthew Henry says here, a believer needs not fear and therefore should not fear any arrow because the point is off. The poison is out. O death, where is thy sting? Closed quote. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. Verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Now, if we're right in thinking that this psalm was written by Moses, then we must be careful to read these statements in their covenantal context. Moses said this sort of thing all the time. He had the people of Israel stand on two mountains on opposite sides of a valley to try and communicate to them that there were two paths open before them, a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. He said in Deuteronomy 28, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. So Moses is saying, obey the Lord, walk in his ways, and enjoy all these blessings. That's the road. That's the path. Walk ye in it. But then he talked about the other way as well. He said, Verse 58 to 61, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also, and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Close quote. So, verses 7 to 8 of Psalm 91 
are really just a poetic expression of same. If you truly and entirely abide in God, then you will be only and exclusively blessed. But of course, no one has ever truly and entirely abided in God except Jesus. W.S. Plumer makes careful note of that in his commentary on these verses in Psalm 91. He says, The promise is of an absolute exemption from all that could endanger life. This was true of none but Jesus, closed quote. But he goes on to say, yet God exercises a kind and special providence over his people, closed quote. So Psalm 91, all of these promises, everything we've just read, all these protections, these are perfectly true of Jesus and providentially true of all those who put their faith in Jesus. Remember, all the promises of God are now yes and amen in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Paul goes on to say, that is why it is through him, through Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guaranteed, close quote. So this was immediately and entirely true of Jesus in his earthly life. It was impossible that Jesus should die of some plague. It was impossible that Jesus would be crushed by a a rock falling from a tower. No, Jesus was perfectly and entirely safe within the fortress of God's love and protection because he was perfect and entire in his obedience to God's commands. And if we are in God... Through faith in Jesus Christ, these protections are available also to us in an immediate sense, a progressive sense, and an ultimate sense. Each of those are very important. Immediately, in terms of God's precise and attentive providence, that's yours right now, believer, if you have faith in God through Christ. And then progressively, in the sense that we are taught by the Holy Spirit to increasingly walk in obedience and love. And then ultimately, in the sense that one day we will stand and see the recompense of the wicked. Revelation 20, verse 6 speaks of that. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So if you die in Christ, you will rise in Christ. And blessed and holy are all those who share in this resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. You will only watch and look upon the recompense of the wicked. Revelation talks about that too. Revelation 21, 7 to 8 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars— Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We jump back into Psalm 91 at verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Some versions translate the first word in verse 9 as if. So, for example, the NIV has it, if you say, The Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling. No harm will overtake you, 
no disaster will come near your tent. But either way, the verse is clearly conditional. If you are in God through faith in Christ, no evil shall befall you. Because you are in God through Christ, no evil shall befall you. No plague come near your tent. In our particular circumstances, we want to know exactly what that means. Matthew Henry says usefully here, Though trouble or affliction befall thee, yet there shall be no real evil in it. For it shall come from the love of God and shall be sanctified. It shall come not for thy hurt, but for thy good. And though for the present it be not joyous but grievous, yet in the end it shall yield so well that thou thyself shalt own no evil befell thee. Close quote. Verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. W.S. Plumer says marvelously here, It is a blessed fact revealed in Scripture that angels and men constitute, through Christ, one family. Matthew Henry goes even further than that. He says, He who is the Lord of the angels, who gave them their being and gives laws to them, whose they are, and whom they were made to serve, he shall give his angels a charge over thee, not only over the church in general, but over every particular believer. Closed quote. And Christians have traditionally believed in the concept of guardian angels. Now, I would imagine that perhaps in recent decades, that doctrine has seemed superfluous to us, unnecessary. Uh, Certainly, it hasn't occupied our thoughts a great deal, but All of a sudden, given some of the hazards and dangers we are facing once again in our society, I would imagine this doctrine seems precious to us once again. Now, notice that these angels are charged with guarding us in all our ways. That is, in the ways that we have been commanded to walk in. Meaning that when you walk where you're supposed to walk, you are protected. But if you're walking where you're not supposed to be, then you walk alone. The angels of God are not going to plow the road for you while you run headlong into sin and stupid. Being a Christian is kind of like being a streetcar. You can only access the power and the promises when you stay in your lane. Now, of course, we can't leave this section of the psalm without thinking about the fact that the devil actually quotes these verses to Jesus during the desert temptation recorded in Matthew 4. He knew these promises to apply principally and particularly to Christ. And therefore, he tempted Jesus to put these promises to the test. Jump off this high pinnacle, Jesus, and let's see the angels of heaven dispatched to your immediate rescue. But Jesus wisely and perfectly replied, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Matthew 4, 7. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop and hear that. Jesus could access all the promises and benefits of this psalm. He had them all. He could access them. They were on speed dial, as it were. And yet, he refused to do reckless and stupid things. You see, Psalm 91 is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't pray this psalm instead of wearing your seatbelt. That would be testing God. Willem van Gemmeren helps us thread the needle here in terms of application. He describes the wise and mature believer, saying, They trust their Heavenly Father while they act responsibly. 
Hence, they do not test the Lord to see to what extent he will deliver them from trouble, closed quote. That is well and helpfully said. So the people who are trusting God are under angelic care, and therefore they are walking confidently through enemy territory. We see that in verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Most of the commentators remind us here that this sort of symbolic language is used throughout the scriptures to refer to spiritual adversaries. W.S. Plumer, for example, says, Often in scripture are spiritual adversaries compared to fierce and venomous creatures. Close quote. So the people who are trusting God are walking through a world that is filled with spiritual adversaries. And this Of course, is what Martin Luther was talking about in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In verse 3 of that great hymn, he says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That is the encouragement that is given by the psalmist to all those who are trusting in God. In verses 14 to 16, we have God's confirming oracle, God's pledge, as some commentaries have it. So we're to understand God now speaking about the person who has put his faith in him. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Martin Luther says here, By the cluster of promises at the end of the psalm, the Holy Spirit quickens and refreshes our hearts with consolation. Close quote. And indeed, that is true. Do you know the Lord? Have you taken refuge in him through faith in Jesus Christ? Then he will deliver you. He will protect you. You will call out to him during times of distress, and he will answer you. He will be with you in your trouble. He will rescue you and honor you. He will give you long life and show you his salvation. All the commentators are on the same page here as to the meaning of these last two promises in verse 16. Matthew Henry says, They shall live long enough. They shall be continued in this world till they have done the work they were sent into this world for and are ready for heaven. And that is long enough. Who would wish to live a day longer than God has some work to do, either by him or upon him? They shall think it long enough, for God, by his grace, shall wean them from the world and make them willing to leave it, closed quote. Calvin has a similar view. He says, The salvation of God extends far beyond the narrow boundary of earthly existence. And it is to this, whether we live or come to die, that we should principally look, closed quote. If you're in God through faith in Jesus Christ, you will live precisely the life you were created to live. 
you will do precisely the work that God ordained for you to do. You will undergo precisely the chastisements and refinements that God has willed for you. And then you will die. You will see the Lord and be changed. And you will understand yourself to have lost nothing. You will think your life to have been long enough. And you will be ready to leave this world and to claim your eternal reward. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.